Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Cage Kumaladun. Today we take you to the University of Maine for the biannual William S. Cohen Lecture Series. Our speakers, Medal of Honor recipient Kyle Carpenter, General Jim Mattis, and Secretary William S. Cohen discuss the importance of American leadership in a dangerous world. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speak in Maine programs. The program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing our speakers today is Felicia Knight, president of the Knight Caney Group. By way of introducing our guests today, we're going to kind of depart a little bit from the general biography. Kyle Carpenter is many things. Kyle is a son, a brother, a husband, a Marine, a leader, a hero, and a survivor. He's a best-selling author, a sought-after speaker, an extreme sports enthusiast. He's also about to launch a major podcast, and he is the youngest living person to be awarded our country's highest and most prestigious military decoration, the Medal of Honor. Kyle's just 32, and he is the first person to tell you he does not want to be defined by any one experience in his life, in a lifetime of experiences, some of which haven't even happened yet. But to explain how he came to be here today, I have to tell you about one experience. In November of 2010, as a 21-year-old Marine, Kyle was posted on a rooftop in Helmand Province, Afghanistan. He was there with another Marine, his best friend, Nick. During this watch, they were targeted by bullets, bombs, and grenades. And a live grenade was lobbed into their position, and without hesitation, Kyle threw himself on the grenade, saving the life of his friend. What followed for Kyle was more than most of us could imagine. His injuries were devastating. He was unconscious for five weeks. He flatlined three times and was in hospitals and care facilities for nearly three years, undergoing more than 40 surgeries to help reconstruct his face, his right arm, and other body parts torn apart by the explosion. There were days during his recovery period where just getting out of bed was a victory. Even in those darkest days of recovery, Kyle had a vision for his future. He'd run a marathon, he'd finish college, He'd backpack through Europe, he'd go skydiving, and he has done all of those things and many, many more, not the least of which getting married to his wife, Brittany, just last fall. Beyond his astonishing success in rebuilding his own life, Kyle has decided to use his platform to encourage others who are struggling and trying to overcome adversity. Kyle is a source of motivation and inspiration to everyone he meets and speaks to. Please welcome Kyle Carpenter. Now you might not expect a kid who hitchhiked around in the American Northwest or who thought nothing of hopping on a freight train to see what was out there, who by his own estimation was a mediocre student, or whose spirited behavior during his college years might have landed him in a local jail for a little visit. 
To then become someone with a library of 7,000 volumes, all of which he read, to become a four-star general in the United States Marine Corps, America's Secretary of Defense, and one of the most respected and sought after and admired leaders in our country. You might not expect it, but all those adventures are part of General Jim Mattis's story. <laughs> but now according to General Mattis, that's exactly the kind of person who should be joining the military. Someone eager to explore, who's insatiably curious, with a yearning for knowledge and adventure and a desire to be part of a team. General Mattis' life has been defined by duty, loyalty, leadership, competence, caring, and conviction. And he has a personal motto by which he has lived his entire life, put others first. His study of world and military history is legend, as is his insistence that the men and women under his command be schooled in the cultural history of their deployment sites. As Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis gave up an enjoyable post-military life in his home state of Washington to once again serve his country, this time as Secretary of Defense. He did so with a great deal of grace under a great deal of pressure. And he did it with intelligence, independence, and integrity. Please welcome General Jim Mattis. <laughs> While it's accurate to say that Secretary William S. Cohen spent more than 30 years in politics, it's an inaccurate portrayal of his career. As President Farini Mundy mentioned, more than a life in politics, his is a life of public service. We all know about his rise in public office from city councilor to mayor to congressman to senator to secretary of defense. We know that he cast many votes and made many decisions that put his state, his country, and his conscience before party or political expediency. His list of accomplishments on the world stage would take hours to list. Most we know about. Others were quietly achieved without fanfare. How and why did he become such a source for good? Well, maybe it's just me, but I believe it's because he's always been committed to the ideal of public service. The biggest reason I look forward to these events is because to be able to listen to Bill Cohen and his various guests through the years talk about national and international affairs, it's really a masterclass in how to appraise and approach difficult problems. Something we really don't get to observe that often in this age of instant outrage. Instead of jumping to conclusions, he listens. Instead of shouting down an opponent, he seeks common ground. Instead of issuing ultimatums, he asks questions. Instead of looking for that big win, he seeks mutually beneficial solutions. Bill Cohen is a humanitarian, he's a philosopher, a poet, and very much a leader. Yes, he understands politics, and he is a very deft politician. But as a public servant, his goal has always been to leave something better than he found it for the public. His deep understanding of the classics and the humanities give him a deep insight into the human condition and our needs for education, science, emotional and humanitarian needs. That's why he championed legislation to preserve civil and voting rights, 
to honor Martin Luther King Jr. and overhaul the US intelligence system. He also worked for the expansion of NATO, for women in combat, and against racism in the American armed forces. He has left public office, but he has not left public service. His presence today in this establishment, where he put the William S. Cohen Institute for Public Service here at the state's public research university, are a testament to his desire to share his knowledge and wisdom and to give opportunities to a new generation of leaders. Maine, the nation, and the world are all better for having Bill Cohen in it. Please welcome Secretary William S. Cohen. Well, here we all are again. Last time we met, we discussed defense and diplomacy in an uncertain world. Well, in those few years, we've gone from uncertain to dangerous, and in so many ways. We have the dangers of mi microscopic viruses, the devastation of global warming, the debilitating politics that we are all enduring. We have our faltering relations and international relations with China, threats from North <coughs> Korea, and of course, the humanitarian crises unfolding in Ukraine and Yemen. So let's begin with Ukraine. Secretary Cohen, you get to go first. It's, it's your house. <laughs> All right. Uh, Carla Del Ponte, the former chief prosecutor of the United Nations War Crimes Tribunals, has said that an arrest warrant should be issued for Russian President Vladimir Putin saying Putin is a war criminal. President Biden has accused him of being a war criminal, and in what we've seen coming out of Bucha in the last couple of days with sh civilians being shot and left for dead, is he a war criminal? I think absolutely. Uh, there's no question that uh, the leader of a country uh, the size of Russia, the Russian people, uh, for him to allow, if not direct, his military uh, to target uh, innocent civilians after promising, number one, I'm not going to invade Ukraine. I'm just conducting a routine <clears throat> training and exercise uh, maneuver. Uh, I will not attack civilian um, people, population, residential areas. And we've seen night after night he has done exactly the opposite <clears throat> of what he pledged. Uh, I it's no question in my mind uh, he is a war criminal. He should be designated as such. And I hope that when people see President Putin's uh, face over the years that he may be in office, uh, they will see war criminal, at least uh, visually embedded uh, <clears throat> on his forehead, because that's what he is. I might say that um, perhaps I'll just stop there. <laughs> <laughs> OK, let me follow up with General Madison. The White House recently uh, released some information saying that President Putin was not being given correct information about the war, that his inner circle were too afraid to tell him the truth of how things are going. So then, if he is ill-informed about what's really happening on the ground, who's in charge regarding these criminal acts? Who gets the blame for that? Well, the blame is clearly on Putin. Uh, he is the one who created a system <clears throat> where no one can bring forward a, uh, an opposing view. He's murdered or imprisoned his political opponents. He's murdered them even <clears throat> in, uh, in foreign countries using chemicals, uh, weapons of mass destruction. 
uh, he's clearly responsible for this. But I would point out that time is not on his side. Uh, he may be able to restrict the Russian people's ability to hear the truth. Uh, a Russian speaker in Kharkov or Kiev may have more freedom of speech than a Russian speaker in Moscow. But eventually, they're going to figure this out. The Russian people will. But uh, thanks right now to the democracy's holding firm, if we hold firm, he's going to lose this gamble and lose it big. And it's in no small part due to the American leadership. It's in no small part due to the Secretary General of NATO, Jen Stoltenberg's just absolutely valiant leadership, and Ursula von der Leyen, the President of the European Commission's leadership, who had the sanctions ready to go, uh, crushing sanctions. So we're going to see this play out, but the responsibility for all the tragedy on the streets of Baku that you just mentioned, and certainly for uh, everything that follows, is going to be on one man's head alone. I'm going to stick with you for a moment. Uh, <clears throat> when you say he's going to lose big, I worry, and I think a, a, a lot of people do, that in some respects, he's already won because he's gone in, he's, he's created thousands of refugees, he has displaced millions of people, mm -hmm. he has killed countless civilians, <clears throat> and then there are peace talks. And he's, he's not just going to leave, mm -hmm. he's going to demand something. And if he gets whatever it is he demands in order for the, the violence to stop, yeah. hasn't he won? Uh, the short answer is no, but your, your question is valid. Uh, we're being reminded in a world where we thought we were beyond war, as some people put it, that, uh, that somehow soft power was going to reign. <clears throat> we're being reminded that hard power still matters. But break down who wins and who loses, break it down strategically, what he needed to do was weaken the European Union and shatter, fragment NATO. Mm -hmm. He has strengthened the European Union, and no doubt NATO is stronger than ever, and even countries like Finland and Sweden, not part of NATO, are for the first time in their history, including the Cold War, are considering joining. So on a strategic level, he's already jeopardized everything he set out for. On an operational level, he has shown the Russian army is pathetic. They do not have NCOs with the initiative and the aggressiveness of the American forces. And they're starting to look a bit like a paper tiger, a murderous paper tiger. They proved in the Middle East they were very adept at killing women and children and unarmed people and creating refugee flows. Well, they're now proving once again they can do that. But when they run up against someone who means business to fight them, like the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian soldiers, uh, we see a different outcome. No, he's lost already. It's just a matter of whether or not the West will stay together. So nothing he's done is normalized. If we don't stick together, then he could have some, he could eke out some sort of a victory. We've seen a lack of patience historically <clears throat> in, in the United States even for war and for sticking together. Um, can NATO stick together? Secretary, I'll send, send this to you. Can, can NATO stick together? Can the European Union stick together? Because ultimately, this is about the Ukrainian people. Can we help them expel a Russian army? Well, that remains to be seen as to whether we can stick together. I think that uh, Putin uh, is planning um, that the United States will falter, that uh, he will survive the sanctions, 
and we looking at our economic uh, interests, the economic pain that we will suffer as a result of higher prices, higher gas prices, higher inflation, uh, which is the war is contributing to, uh, that we will be anxious to remove them. In fact, he's already set that in motion. Uh, what are the terms of any kind of peace agreement? Here's a man who has, as you pointed out, he has uh, affected the lives of 10 million Ukrainians, uh, 4 million um, uh, refugees, another 6 million people displaced, uh, <clears throat> and creating um, uh, issues of uh, hunger, potential famine. Uh, and he has done this and now saying, possibly, we'll make peace when I decide it's time to make peace. <clears throat> and by the way, here are the pieces I want. Mm -hmm. I want Donbass, I want to keep Crimea, I may want to take uh, Odessa, uh, I may uh, go into Moldova, um, and, um, and I will demand that or else. So I think it's really incumbent upon the United States to say no. Uh, we are going to stand firm uh, with our NATO members. We are going to reinforce uh, our NATO uh, members. We are going to deploy more <coughs> troops and give more arms to the Ukrainians. How long we will do that, I don't know. Um, the question is, uh, he believes, again, that we will weaken uh, and uh, find some way to compensate him. I have publicly declared that Ukraine is the one that needs compensation. Yes. Ukraine needs reparations. We keep the sanctions on until every penny has been paid to reconstitute and rebuild the Ukrainian uh, country. Um, whether we will hold to that, the Europeans to date, and I, had, I met with one European um, official just this past uh, Friday, they are strong on this. They're worried about the United States. They want to know if we will hold strong, not will they. We've they are been, committed because they're on the borderline. Of... <laughs> uh, we're over here on the other side of the Atlantic, and they're saying, will you remain strong? And by the way, you've got elections coming up, and we're not too sure. Uh, we like what Biden has said. Um, but we don't know how long he'll be there or whether the, uh, the political fortunes will be reversed and you'll be back to talking about America first again and withdrawing support from the Allies. We had a prior president who said he wanted to get out of Germany, who insulted the German Chancellor, Merkel, who said he wanted to pull our troops out of uh, Japan, South Korea, <clears throat> in addition to pulling them out of Syria and Afghanistan and potentially coming out of Iraq. So the message we have sent to the world is that we're retreating, we're withdrawing, we're coming back to America, meaning you're on your own. And when people say, look to themselves and say, you mean you're withdrawing your support and we're on our own? <clears throat> we may have to make a deal with the devil or the devils uh, in order to uh, ensure our prosperity and survival. So I, I think the, the challenge is really for the United States, I'm more confident than ever on the commitment on the part of the Europeans because they now understand what Putin has in mind. He wants to roll back all of the additions to, uh, uh, to um, uh, NATO since 1997. That means 15 countries out, and that brings us back to uh, the, the borderlands in 1997. And they know that. They don't want that. They want to know if we're going to be there to help them. Well, the, the two of you are giving excellent kind of 30,000 feet views. Kyle, I want to talk to you about what's happening on the ground. We have uh, different motivations here from both sides. The Ukrainian military and civilians are basically fighting for their lives, for their independence as a country. They're, they're motivated for saving themselves. We have Russian troops, many of them conscripts, 
who are not even sure of the mission. They were told initially, you're going on a training exercise. Oh, and now we're going to take you into Ukraine <clears throat> to denazify the country. So they're not really even sure what the mission is. So for soldiers on the ground, what are they thinking, both sides, in, in, the, in these combat situations? I believe that the Ukrainian troops are feeling and holding on to love. Love of their country, themselves, and their fellow troops, and ultimately love of democracy and the freedom and independence that they hold so dear, that we all hold so dear, and that, as we can see, with every minute, comes at great cost and with great sacrifice. And as far as the Russian troops, I can only hope and pray that with time and every bullet fired, that the troops along with their commanders begin to realize if they have not already that what they are being told does not align with what they are personally seeing on the ground. And as they push or retreat into these areas of Ukraine. Um, it's not just troops. It's not one singular body. It's many troops, all with their own mind and their own hearts. And uh, this is coming from the optimistic and hopeful side of me and my thinking, but um, I have seen throughout my recovery and my journey, and I've experienced uh, the power and the beauty of the human spirit. And for our entire history, that has ultimately prevailed. And I just hope that the time that passes until that happens is much shorter than longer. And um, it's, uh, it's tough to believe that, it's either tough to believe or it's unacceptable that President Putin does not understand fully what's going on. And there's, that's not an excuse. And that will never be an excuse. Because with great <clears throat> leaders who should ultimately make sure that uh, their intent is filtered to the very lowest level of troops out in the field, 
the privates that have been in the military for one week should know exactly what those at the very top expect and how they expect it. Um, so by saying that, if they are saying that, um, you're hurting yourselves even more in showing that uh, you ultimately cannot operate or communicate efficiently, which is a very fundamental and foundational element of a competent <laughs> military. Let me ask, I'll put this to you and first to General Mattis. What are the consequences and what is it realistically possible for a commander or a soldier to refuse an order they know to be wrong or inhumane? Well, the Russian military does not have a, uh, I would say, an ethical framework. It's never evidenced one uh, at any time. <clears throat> so. In the U.S. military, it's illegal to give an illegal order. You, you, it doesn't even have to be carried out. If you give the order, you're in violation of the Uniform Code of Military Justice in U.S. law, and that's something the court-martial will sort out. Uh, but if you carry out an illegal order, you are equally responsible. So there is no place to hide in the U.S. military from this sort of thing, and I believe that right now <clears throat> our wonderfully effective CIA and under Bill Burns uh, he has basically ambushed with his intelligence everything Putin was going to do starting last October, November, mm -hmm. and helping to set the conditions for all the NATO allies and other countries to come together here. If they continue at that level of penetration of the Russian operations, which there is no reason to think they will not, we will know the commander's names of those units that were in certain cities. Uh, people can be held accountable for this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Is it realistic in the heat of a battle for someone on, on the front line to say, no, I'm not going to do that? Well, military necessity at times, I mean, war is one tragedy piled upon catastrophe, piled upon disaster. But at the point of contact, <clears throat> you, don't, you do things for military reasons. There's no military reason to shoot someone whose hands are tied behind his back. Mm -hmm. There's no military reason to attack a maternity hospital. Uh, th these are crimes against humanity, and we've been very clear, at least in the last hundred years, how we deal with crimes against humanity. Uh, whether or not we will see any kind of accountability inside the Russian forces, I don't know. Certainly history will hold them to account. And an increasingly isolated Russia uh, paying a, a, an incredible economic price, diplomatically isolated. Uh, it's young people. I mean, 43% of its 18 to 26-year-olds want to emigrate out of Russia. You cannot build a country. <clears throat> you cannot build a country where 43% of your young people want to emigrate out of the country. So the cost on Russia is going to be probably generational right now, and that's how they'll be held to account, I fear, more than in a, uh, in a courtroom. Which, which doesn't help the Ukrainians in the moment. And uh, Secretary Cohen, let me ask you, the Ukrainians have been begging NATO for a no-fly zone mm -hmm. or for MiGs, and NATO has responded by uh, buttressing the forces outside of Ukraine. How does this help Ukraine, no matter how many troops get pushed into Poland or, or other countries? 
Well, we are helping the Ukrainians by um, giving them the capability to take out tanks, uh, aircraft, uh, et cetera. The problem with a no-fly zone uh, is that you have to establish, you have to go and take out the ground forces. Mm -hmm. The ones that are on the ground uh, that can take your planes out. You put your planes over, the, okay. We can go air to air, that's, uh, General Mattis can uh, you know, go into that in detail. But then in order to really have a no-fly zone, you have to go after the ground forces as well. President Biden has said that he will not uh, start World War III by going after um, Putin in Ukraine. I don't think it's wise as a general policy to tell somebody what you won't do. Uh, I think it's better to have him guess what you will or won't do. There was a debate, so I, I think as far as a no-fly zone, you have to have a, also a no-drive zone uh, as well. So the question is, will, will you uh, run the risk of going to war with Putin? Now, some would say it's not that much of a risk because Putin is not, I think, as General Mattis has said, he's not insane, he's not, he's not suicidal. Uh, you don't know that in terms of what he's capable of, but nonetheless, the CIA and others who have made this analysis have said it's not worth the risk in terms of the reward uh, of uh, putting more planes in the air to take out uh, his um, uh, aircraft. Uh, I've come more uh, to the judgment over the last few weeks that I think that we ought to give uh, the Ukrainians more aircraft uh, that are now based in Poland. Uh, to give, if not the military uh, need, the psychological need for President um, Zelensky to say thank you, uh, and I feel better now, we're going to take them on. I think the morale needs a pickup as well. And as you were asking uh, uh, Colonel, uh, uh, Corporal uh, Carpenter here uh, about morale, uh, the morale of the Ukrainians is high. The morale of the Russians is low. But I think the Ukrainians need a boost as well to say the United States and the West is really with them. They've given us these planes. They're not, they're not U.S. planes. They're basically Polish uh, planes, and we know how to fly them. Uh, and uh, I don't know that it would make that much of a military difference, but I think in terms of morale, in terms of telling Putin, you can't dictate all of the terms. You've started a war, and you're telling us what we can do what equipment we can give. Um, uh, that's not the way it should work. So I think that we tell him less about what we won't do and provide more of what we can do uh, without, quote, crossing the line and going to a full-scale war with Russia. It might come to that mm -hmm. uh, if he were to touch any part of uh, the uh, NATO um, uh, countries. Uh, then I think all bets are off. And I don't think he wants to have all bets off. Uh, so I, I think we ought to do more for the Ukrainians. <clears throat> Seeing what shape the Russian military is in, but also understanding it is a vast country and he can get more soldiers and more equipment. Mm -hmm. Is it a risk to take him on directly? Do you think he would use nuclear weapons? Well, as, as Ukraine becomes more and more of a bleeding ulcer for him, uh, I think Secretary Austin put it very well, Secretary of Defense Austin, when he said that he can always draw more troops, as you point out, from elsewhere and send them in. But he's going to be sending them in to a wood chipper, is the way he described it, if we provide the Ukrainians the ability to fight. Strategically, uh, we are in a tough position, and it, it's morally offensive, repugnant, and insult to us 
to watch what's happening to the Ukrainian people. But right now, President Biden, I believe, must uh, do everything he can to keep this war from spreading. Uh, if it spreads, that's not good for Ukraine either, because now Ukraine becomes a bit player to a broader war. So to keep this war from spreading is critical right now, and we mustn't do things as much as we want to do everything possible to help the Ukraine people. That's going to thrust this into a NATO versus Russia active operation. If that happens, and looking at the pathetic performance of this Russian army, he could very easily be pushed toward a nuclear exchange. <clears throat> and while you would say, well, that's not rational, this is a creature straight out of Dostoevsky. He sees Russia surrounded by nightmares. And he wants to, he only sees two kinds of states around him. One is a vassal, does exactly what they're told when he tells them to do it, think Belarus, mm -hmm. and one is Czechoslovakia, an imperfect, struggling, democracy where people have freedom of speech, freedom of press, things we take for granted we should never take for granted. And if he leaves that where it's at right now, he's going to be threatened. So we're in a very, very difficult position. We don't want this to spread more widely. And we do need to do, I think, exactly what Secretary Cohen said, which is give all possible means to the Ukrainian people, support them diplomatically, support the refugees, and, and just think of this, he, Putin has basically declared war on a country the size of France. Uh, statewide, it'd be like if you took all of Texas except the Panhandle. <clears throat> and he has sent in, initially, 100,000 troops. He has suffered enormous casualties and equipment loss. How is he going to subdue a country still with some 40 million people in it, nearly the size of Texas, with fewer troops than Texas probably has in terms of Texas Rangers, Highway Patrol, and local police. I mean, it, it, this is going to be a disaster for them. So now what we have to do is try to stop the disaster from actually mushrooming, literally into a mushroom cloud, I would say. If he were to use strategic nuclear weapon in Ukraine, which is not a member <clears throat> of NATO, what happens then? Well, I, I, that I would not speculate on. I will tell Good you answer. that during my, well, uh, during my time as Secretary of Defense, uh, our spies are very, very good. They were good then. And they revealed to us that he had a policy of what's called escalate to de-escalate. Remember those three words. Escalate a conventional war to a low-yield nuclear weapon and then say, now we will de-escalate. Don't touch me now and we will stop where we're at. In other words, he escalates to victory. <clears throat> our response was, with good consultation with our European allies, by the way, was to establish both an air-launched and sea-launched cruise missile once more with a low-yield weapon, and also to, uh, to put those weapons on board the submarines, which are very hard for the Russians to know where they're at. The idea was, and I told my Russian counterpart through channels, not personally, that we've read your mail, don't even think about it. This is a nuclear deterrent. This is not for nuclear war fighting. So we have done what we can to try to keep the peace one more year, one more month, one more week as our diplomats try to solve this issue. But eventually we're going to have to deal with a guy who's pretty, uh, pretty mercurial 
and he's very much a, uh, a risk taker. I'm going to have one more question on Ukraine because I could talk to you all for five hours on this, but I, I want to hit a couple more subjects. But Kyle, I'm going to give you a final question. Um, the title of your book is You Are Worth It, Building a Life Worth Fighting For. And that refers to your belief that people in this country, people you've never met, people you don't know, our families, our government, are worth sacrificing for. Is this belief necessary among all military men and women in order to put their lives on the line? And I ask that in the context of you, Ukrainian military versus <clears throat> Russian military and what each is fighting for. I would say that it's not only true, but it's a prerequisite for those that serve that are willing to, like many in here, give up to their lives for each other, for their nations, and for something greater uh, than themselves. And uh, you said uh, our nation and, and um, our troops. But when it comes to service, uh, you are worth it applies just as much to everyone around the world who wakes up every day hoping that today's sunrise is a little more hopeful and a little less fearful than the days before. Um, when I say you are worth it, I think of many things, but, um, you know, it, it applies to the children who in Afghanistan and so many places around the world, they just want to experience what is school like. They want to have shoes on their feet as they walk miles in 100 degree plus temperatures down rocky roads with uh, old gas can that they're going to use to get unsanitary drinking water out of a community well. It applies to the women who just want to wake up and feel like they're being given their God-given dignity that we all and all women deserve. The children that at 12 years old came to us crying, telling us that they're the ones that threw the grenade over our wall because the Taliban pulled them out of bed in the middle of the night and put a live grenade in their hand and forced them to make a decision 
to throw the grenade or to cease to exist. The children that ask me through interpreters is everywhere in America like Disney World. So that's why I say you are worth it to let all of you know, all Americans know, and the people around the world that just hope for a better life for themselves and their families, that you are worth it, and you are worth serving and sacrificing for, and three years in a hospital bed and deep scars on our bodies, limbs that so many who I recovered with will live without forever. Those that somehow, along with incredible military medicine and loving and caring corpsmen and devoted medics, survived the battlefield as quadruple amputees who when I would open my door to go to therapy every morning, they would have their small children on what's left of their legs pushing their electric chairs with what's left of their arms with a smile on their face, pushing forward to therapy and to make themselves better and to rebuild their lives and what's left of their body. But I also say that to put it back on those that thank me for my service, to put it back on all of you. To let you hear that and think, you know, I am worth it. I am worth all of that. I am worth waking up in this amazing country that those in World War II at 17, 18, 19 years old knew that they most likely were not going to make it out of the landing craft. But when they landed on the beach and that door opened up, they charged for it anyway. Those that knew they were bleeding out after covering grenades for their fellow Marines and troops in Vietnam, knowing in the last few seconds and breaths of their full measure of devotion that they were giving that most would not understand or even know where or how they gave that last full measure of devotion. Those that froze fighting at the Chosen Reservoir in Korea, those that not only never made it home, but those that are still guarded today in Arlington at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers, we still, generations later, cannot accurately tell their families how or where. You know, they gave it all for each other in their country. So, um, you know, I challenge you like I said earlier to uh, the ROTC troops. Life is worth everything you've got. And 
that they weren't scary because we were in Afghanistan for a noble cause, but I tasted those final moments and the darkness closed in. I thought about my family. I said a quick prayer for forgiveness for anything I had done wrong. And at 21 years old, as my ears are ringing right now, as I talk to you on this stage, that was it. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We're all destined for those final moments, and I hope they're all at the end of a long and happy life, fulfilling life for all of you, a life that you've been able to live and pursue happiness because of a free country. But they will come. And so make the most of it because, again, it's worth everything we've got. And uh, all we can do is be there for each other and be on this journey together work hard, try to be good people and do good things and uh, ultimately leave the world uh, better than when you came into it and uh, the time that you were here. Thank you, Kyle. <laughs> Secretary Cohen, I'm <clears throat> sorry to make you fall. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Well, I already promoted him to colonel a moment did. ago. So. <laughs> I'll take it. He has that power. Um, I want to turn, if we can, to Yemen, where another human crisis is unfolding. The United Nations says that the civil war in Yemen has produced the largest humanitarian crisis in the world, with 24 million people, that's 80% of the population, needing humanitarian protection. There is hunger. There is actual famine. There are 10,000 children known to have been killed or wounded. Saudi Arabia is a U.S. ally. <clears throat> Saudi Arabia has spent seven years in this conflict fighting the Houthi rebels, and the U.S. supports Saudi Arabia's involvement. The U.S. also sells weapons to the Saudis. Now, the U.S. may not have a leadership role in this conflict, but we do have a role. A two-month ceasefire has been announced. Uh, with, a, with uh, the advent of Ramadan. But Secretary Cohen, given the Saudi crime Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's role in the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, and that the Houthis in Yemen have actively fought against Al-Qaeda and against ISIL, is the United States on the right side of this conflict? I don't think there's a right <clears throat> side of, of this conflict. Um, we don't get to choose um, our allies or partners uh, all the time. And this is a situation in which there's a real conflict. Uh, I met with uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, shortly after the, uh, the war began, and I was assured that it would only last another three weeks. Uh, well, years <laughs> later, they're still at it. Uh, we, um, were, uh, we were concerned for the kind of weapons they were using, uh, the fact that they were targeting civilian uh, areas. And so uh, we uh, cut back, actually, on the support that we were giving them. Uh, and then we were confining it more to intelligence so that you'll know where your adversaries are, but giving them good intelligence so that they could go after the people that they were trying to hit, and not civilians. Part of the problem is that uh, Saudis are not doing this on their own. 
Iran has a big role in this. Iran is using the Houthis uh, and the Yemenis as a proxy of war against the Saudis. So we are not friendly with the Iranians. We see Iran as an enemy uh, in the region. We're in a situation in which we don't want to help the Iranians. The Iranians actually are using the Houthis to target the Saudis. Uh, the Saudis, for whatever reason, they still are one of the major suppliers of oil and gas to the world economy. Not that we're acquiring so much uh, from the Saudis uh, any longer, but the Saudis are important for world economic stability. So do we want to have the Iranians be able to target the oil pipelines uh, of the Saudis without them being able to defend? So you have these other issues which you have to contend with. Um, so what we try and do, and by the way, here's a different dimension of this problem. The reason that the Saudis are unsure of the U.S. commitment is that they can say to us that, you know, if, we don't, if you don't give us what we need, we can get it elsewhere. Who would give it to them from another source? The Russians. Russia. And so we have a situation in which at one point the Saudis and the others in the Middle East could count on the United States to help defend their interests. And we're saying, well, maybe we shouldn't be involved with the Saudis. Maybe we should cut back. Maybe we won't give them what they're looking for in the way of an arms package, which is being held up uh, in the Senate. Uh, then they can go to Putin, and he's more than happy. Putin is more than happy to come and be the defender of the Saudi regime more than happy uh, to play a role now in Syria, mm -hmm. more than happy to be the dominant supplier of weapons throughout the, the entire Middle East. So we're caught in a situation in which, do we want that to happen where we can exercise some uh, constraint upon what the Saudis and the others are doing in order to uh, make sure that there's not greater instability in the Middle East? So it's not an easy choice. You have to go through and say, okay, we don't like what's happened, and we don't like the way you're pursuing this war, but let's look at the option. If Putin were there being able to do what he's doing in Ukraine in terms of doing the same thing as, he's doing, as he did in Syria, would that <coughs> spread to the other areas, including the Saudis and possibly UAE uh, and, and others? So those are the kind of hard decisions that any administration has to make. And it may offend our sensibilities that we're dealing with countries that don't share our uh, standards, but they, they have an impact on the world economy. And the one thing we are eager to avoid is taking action which allows another country to exert authority and do it in a way that's adverse to our, our own and to international security <clears throat> interests. So they're not easy calls. Uh, we have to try and say, and I think we have urged the Saudis to be more restrained, to not uh, use dumb uh, bombs, so to speak, to use precision munitions, have good intelligence, and be uh, concerned that the United States is still very much concerned about human rights and uh, not targeting and, and, and killing uh, innocent civilians. But not an easy case to resolve, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that they've decided to cease um, the, the war for two months. Maybe something will come out of that, and if so, it'll be a good thing. Well, speaking of, of situations that are uh, unwinding in a way that we don't like, um, I'd like to talk for a moment about Afghanistan, which is another huge um, humanitarian crisis. 
nearly 25 million people are requiring humanitarian assistance in Afghanistan right now. Half the population faces hunger. Um, Nine million people currently in a state of food insecurity, and that, according to the UN, is the highest in the world. So, General Mattis, how much of this ongoing tragedy in Afghanistan now is the result of the U.S. withdrawal? Well, it's impossible to say that our withdrawal uh, didn't have a significant impact here. <clears throat> the, uh, the, the American surrender, uh, such as it was, uh, especially without consultation with allies, uh, put the allies in a hurried up mode to get their troops out, this sort of thing. And if you look back a, a year ago, we didn't have 24 million people, according to the United Nations now, in urgent need of humanitarian support. If you go back a year ago, <clears throat> Afghan girls made up over 40% of the population of the high school students. As of this morning, they make up zero. So if you've ever wondered who's the good guys and who's the bad guys in the world, this should help clarify your discrimination. I think that, uh, yes, at times we've, we've gotten it wrong in America, but we have a unique ability to learn from our mistakes and look at the way Bill Burns and Secretary of State Blinken, the director of CIA and Blinken, are now consulting with allies, sharing intelligence, we can learn from our mistakes. We should, be, we should acknowledge we made a mistake and there are severe humanitarian results of strategic mistakes. It's why Secretary Cohen just said when you're at this level and he's been at the apex of government, you generally at that level get the choice between two bad options. Mm -hmm. And whether it be in Yemen, where we're you know, not one of those missiles being fired by the Houthis is made in Yemen. They're all coming the dozens, the hundreds mm -hmm. that are being fired on the United Arab Emirates and on Saudi, on civilian towns are being made in Iran. <clears throat> Sometimes you have to do what is necessary and not what you want to do. I'm quite certain that FDR did not find a lot in common with Joseph Stalin when he made common cause to defeat Hitler. Once in a while, we need to give our presidents, I don't care what party, this isn't a partisan statement, we need to give them a little leeway, a little respect that they're trying to do what is right in a world that gives them only the choice between bad options. And this is a, a case where we made a choice that probably strategically was not as sound or as, as much the result of consultation with our allies as it should have received. Can I add a postscript to what uh, the general had just said? Um, when he was serving as Secretary of Defense, uh, I made a policy not to call him, uh, that uh, he was occupying that office and he didn't need my advice on anything. So we kept uh, uh, a separation of church and state, so to speak. Uh, uh, I didn't want to in any way uh, call and ask what he was doing or give him any advice because I knew he knew, what, knew more than I did. But I was sitting doing an interview with BBC and Caddy Kay, if you remember when she was doing BBC, I was sitting in front of her and, she uh, was sitting right there, and just as the cameras were coming on and they're counting down 10, 9, 8, she slipped me a piece of paper and said, we have just heard that President uh, Trump uh, has uh, ordered the removal of our, all American forces. And now, what do you have to say about that? <laughs> and so I uh, kind of babbled for the next couple of minutes and got my way through it, and the minute I got off, I called uh, Secretary Mattis, I said, 
tell me what's going on. And uh, he said, well, we've been ordered to take our troops out. And I said, how this soon? This Syria, right? Sir? Syria, I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah, Syria. And I said, uh, how soon? He said, immediately. And I knew at that moment what was going to take place. I didn't talk to him after that. The next day, uh, he, uh, he, well, he typed up a little uh, a letter of resignation and he went in to see President Trump and asked him to consider at least having time to consult with our allies, at least having time to do it over a period of time so there could be order out of chaos. And uh, he went in to see the president. The president said, no, do it now. Uh, at that moment, um, General Mattis, being the man that he is, said, uh, I no longer can serve you. Here's my resignation, because we no longer share the same worldview about the need for um, principle, for dealing with our allies, for protecting our troops who will be endangered by this. And so there are times when you have to give your president leeway in dealing with bad situations. And there are times what General Mattis did, Secretary Mattis did in saying, I can't, um, I can't support serving in this capacity. As high an honor as it is, uh, I have my own sense of honor and duty and I resign. So I, I, I wanted to say that because he doesn't talk about it, and I think it's important that people understand it. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a discussion from the William S. Cohen Lecture Series at the University of Maine. If you missed part of this program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Kumaladu. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.